Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Casey Carcerell and Michael Flaherty about their new book, The Cage of Days, Time and Temporal Experience in Prison, published by Columbia University Press this year. Casey Carcerell was incarcerated for 31 years in 12 different prisons, until his parole in 2013. He is also the author of Behind a Convict's Eyes, Doing Time in a Modern Prison, and Prison Inc., A Convict Exposes Life Inside a Private Prison. Michael G. Flaherty is Professor of Sociology at Eckerd College and the University of South Florida. He is also the author of A Watched Pot, How We Experience Time, and The Texture of Time, Agency and Temporal Experience. And he is a co-editor of Time Work, Studies of Temporal Agency. Michael and Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us, Rachel. Well, as I was saying uh, before we began, I'm really excited to have both of you here. And I would like to say that this book had a profound impact. Reading it was a profound experience for me. And it is interesting, very interesting from an intellectual point of view, but it's also really poignant from a, a human or humane point of view. So uh, I, it's something that I'm really excited to talk to you about. Uh, so to begin, uh, I wonder if you'd each tell us something about yourselves and your own background, and then how you came together to write this book. So um, Casey, would you like to start? Well, I can explain uh, my background is pretty clear in the book. <laughs> uh, I had an idea about time and I contacted Mike about it and from there I guess we kind of just got together I'm getting a lot of feedback here so uh, okay Michael would you like to uh, tell us about your background yeah, as uh, KC started to say, uh, he was uh, in prison and uh, had uh, done a couple of books about prison. And uh, there's a whole thing called convict criminology where an inside guy like uh, KC teams up with an outside guy to study life in prison. And uh, KC had uh, done a couple of books, as I think you mentioned, with a well-known criminal justice scholar named Tom Bernard, who was kind of a mentor to KC. And uh, but uh, Tom Bernard uh, died pretty young, and uh, KC wanted to uh, study time in prison. He became uh, really fascinated by how time is distorted and shaped by the experience of being in prison and um, wanted, I guess, a, a new outside guy uh, in the convict criminology kind of uh, tradition. And he had come across my work, the work that you mentioned in the introduction. Uh, I've been, uh, I'm a sociologist by training and uh, I've made the study of time and temporal experience the focus of my research for uh, most of my career. And uh, KC came across this work while he was uh, 
reading and uh, studying the uh, subject of time uh, while in prison and reached out to me. So one day I walked to my mailbox uh, at Eckerd College and I found a very strange envelope in the mailbox. And on the outside, it was stamped. Uh, this, this letter has been mailed from the prison system of a particular state. And I wondered what this was about. And when I opened it up, uh, Casey uh, said uh, something along the lines of you study time, I do time, would you like to collaborate? That was in, uh, I think, 2010. And uh, we started working on this project at that point. And did you kind of leap at that opportunity? Or did you say, gosh, I've never had an invitation like this before. I'm not sure what to do with it. No, there was no leaping. Um, I wasn't, I was already, you know, I had my own research agenda going and, um, uh, and I, you know, there was, I didn't know Casey at all. Um, and so I, I was, uh, and, uh, my partner was like, uh, well, why don't you try to find out a little bit about this person uh, before you agree to do this? And I ran the idea past my, uh, secretary, Linda F. O'Brien, and I was like, what do you think about this? Uh, she was very excited and enthusiastic about it and said, you know, this could really become something. Um, uh, at uh, my partner Gretchen's uh, urging, I tried to find out a little bit more about KC. Uh, and uh, one thing we did was we found uh, the widow of his mentor time, Tom Bernard, and she confirmed that Tom thought very highly of KC and that let him call the house. And this all increased our, our confidence in, in him. And I saw that he had done a couple of books with Tom Bernard already. Um, and so there was no leaping. There was a little bit of vetting, I guess I should say. Hmm. And Casey didn't say this. Um, he mentioned that his background is all in the book. But one thing that is in the book is that he actually um, completed a PhD while in prison, which sounds really, really difficult. And if you read the circumstances in the book, you'll see even more difficult than you might imagine. So was this following uh, the PhD? The, uh, the PhD, the book, was sort of, uh, our book, yes, definitely, was sort of, yeah. his PhD yeah. was sort of the uh, impetus for it. He had, had started that research and, and, um, and I said, well, yeah, you, you did do this, but I want to work with you further to collect more data on this and, and, and strengthen it a little bit more. And so his PhD was sort of the basis for it. And uh, kind of a starting point, I guess I would say, for uh, the further research that we did together. Yeah. So it's a, um, a big topic, time in prison. There are a lot of different aspects to it. Um, and I wonder, so as the title suggests, the title Cage of Days suggests time in prison is very different than time on the outside. Uh, it's longer, for one thing. And one way you describe the difference is with a concept that you call protracted duration. Would you explain what protracted duration is? 
Well, protracted duration is not exclusive to prison. Uh, protracted duration is uh, the perception that we have that time is passing uh, very slowly. And uh, this happens outside of prison. It certainly happens inside of prison, even more so. Um, and uh, so, uh, for example, um, if you are forced to wait in a doctor's waiting room for an extended period of time, the, the, and then I come along and I ask, uh, uh, how was time experienced for you? And, and, and the person might say, well, I know it only was uh, 30 minutes, but it felt like hours. Uh, so that's protracted duration. Sometimes it happens during uh, suffering, uh, physical suffering or emotional suffering. Sometimes it happens in waiting and boredom. Sometimes it happens in combat and violence where the violence is perceived to uh, transpire in slow motion, despite the fact, of course, that nothing of the sort is actually uh, going on. And so protracted duration is distortion in the perceived passage of time where the individual uh, perceives time to be passing much slower than actual time as measured with standard temporal units of clocks and calendars. And so you often get it marked by um, someone translating their experience for us along the lines of, I know it only took seconds, the automobile accident, but it felt like hours. Or uh, I know it was only an hour, but it felt like days or forever. Um, and so you'll get those kinds, or it, or it seemed to be occurring in slow motion. These are the verbal markers for protracted duration. And, and what they mark is the individual perceiving, um, uh, they perceive time to be passing uh, much slower than uh, standard uh, clocks and calendars would, uh, would actually indicate. Mm. So that's something probably everybody has had an experience of, but it's also something that uh, probably everyone who's been incarcerated experiences, right? It's a huge issue in prison. I mean, it occurs in everyday life, but it tends to be relatively rare in, in everyday life. Uh, uh, you don't experience protracted duration when you uh, go to the uh, pharmacy for toothbrush for a toothbrush. Uh, you experience protracted duration when you're in an automobile accident or when you're forced to wait or uh, when you're put into a prison cell with nothing to do. And so uh, there's a connection between what prisoners experience and what we experience, but um, incarceration magnifies uh, the experience for them. And, and mm -hmm. it is a much uh, more widespread problem inside of prison, and it's a much more severe problem inside of prison. There's so many different aspects to a life in prison that I would say I had not appreciated fully. Um, and one aspect that I really hadn't fully appreciated first appears in chapter one, and then it's abundantly present, really, in every following chapter. And that is how very structured an inmate's day is in these distinct and rigid increments of time. So I wonder if you could say, what effect does this regimentation have on the individual's experience? 
Well, it has a huge impact on uh, the individual's experience such that it's an incredible shock to make the transition from everyday life into prison. Uh, you and I eat when we're hungry. You and I sleep when we're tired. You and I take a shower when we feel like uh, we're a little grubby or dirty. Um, uh, you and I can go outside and change our scenery whenever we feel like it. Uh, you and I can call a loved one whenever we want to. None of these things uh, are available to prisoners once they enter the carceral uh, setting. Uh, so there's a tremendous loss of temporal autonomy. And this is uh, something that we in everyday life uh, take really so much for granted. Uh, right now, if the chair I'm sitting in is not quite comfortable, I can move it around and, and make it comfortable for myself so that, um, uh, and, and that's a tiny taken for granted thing as I, I tell the students in my class. And yet in prison, the chair will be bolted to the floor and you don't have any options for moving it around. And that, this is metaphorical for the fact that you lose all control, you lose all say over um, when you do things. Uh, when do you eat? You eat when they tell you to eat, and you have as much time to eat as they tell you, which is 15 minutes. And if you're not finished eating in 15 minutes, nobody cares because you're going back to the cell, whether you finished your meal or not. So you better eat quickly. Uh, when do you sleep? You sleep when they turn the lights out and nobody asks you if uh, you're ready to have the lights turned out. So if you're reading a good book and you'd like to keep reading, that's too bad. Or maybe there's a light in your cell 24-7 and nobody cares that you have difficulty sleeping with a light shining uh, in your cell. And you can't cover yourself up because it's against the rules to cover yourself up, especially your head, because they want to be able to see and count you at three o'clock in the morning. And so the when you do things, the how long you do things, the order in which you do things, all of these are aspects of time. Duration is how long you get to do things. Timing is when you get to do things. Frequency, how often you get to do things. Uh, uh, allocation, how much time do you spend? Uh, if I'm sore, I might want to spend a little longer in the shower under the hot water. Uh, in a prison, you get 10 minutes, and from that, you get to subtract traveling time, the time it takes for you to get to the shower and the time it takes for you to get back to the cell. So you don't have 10 minutes. You have 10 minutes minus the time it takes to get to uh, the, the shower and the time it takes to get back. Uh, when do you go to recreation? Um, when they let you out of your cell, which might only be uh, for an hour, a couple of times a week. Um, and how long are you out there? Well, you're out there until they herd you back into yourself. So there's um, a tremendous shock. Uh, the transition is shocking uh, for the typical prisoner because uh, you go from having temporal autonomy and deciding all of these different dimensions of time in your life, how long and when and how much, and to... Everything about time is now 
predefined. The schedule was uh, arranged before you ever entered the prison. You have no say over it. And, um, and that's that. And the way you tell it also, it appears that although um, I think one sort of quotation is, I've got nothing but time, but yet there's never enough time. This is the paradox, and it's interesting, isn't it? Um, and I think that you put your finger on a very good, very important point, because the way we talk about it is that they've been given time. And even the convicts talk this way. They say they will ask each other, what did they give you? And, and they'll say, well, they gave me five to ten, let's say. Um, and that sounds like somebody gave them a gift, but there wasn't any gift given to them. Um, and so the, the language we use of, of time being given to them is actually quite misleading. Actually, a trick is played on them. The cons are conned because the time they serve will seem much longer than the official sentence to go back to the point that we made with protracted duration. Um, so they haven't been uh, given time. In fact, as, as you point out with, with your question, what happens is that they find that the time that they have in prison is predefined, dictated, controlled by others, and so that it isn't their time. Um, at one point in one of the letters, you know, when uh, we started this project, Carceral was still in prison, and, and I asked a naive question in one of my letters, or I made a kind of naive comment. I said, well, um, I guess I was feeling sorry for myself and busy and being pulled in a lot of different directions by stuff. And I said, it must be kind of nice to be able to have time to yourself and focus on what you want to do. And he, you know, rebuked me a little and said, well, you know, is it my time? It's not my time. It's the state's time. And I'm uh, serving that time rather than uh, than uh, than uh, actually using it. So it's not for you and me. Time is a resource. You know, I asked my students in class uh, a couple days ago, "What are you planning to do for the summer?" And they all had exciting plans that they were looking forward to. And I said that I was looking forward to my first in-person conferences in two years, uh, one in Canada and one in LA. And so um, for us, time the, su- the time of the summer is a resource and we can decide how to use it. But time is not a resource uh, for uh, prisoners. Uh, time is something that they serve uh, at the behest of others and they do uh, what they're told to do when they're told to do it. And, uh, and so they haven't been given time in the, the sense that those words imply. Yeah. And I have another question sort of related to that about serving time. Uh, that language is really interesting. The language around time being given time or serving time. And you have a chapter in fact called serving time where you talk about judicial sentencing And you say that it's anything but a rational calculus, or as you say, we are not doing something akin to measuring the flour that we need to bake a cake. Uh, And yet, I imagine that the cake baking analogy is probably how most of us perceive judicial sentences. You do this 
thing. This is the amount of time that you are given, as you say, or that you will serve. So um, I wonder what happens to judicial sentences and how do people end up serving indefinite time in prison? Well, this is a, a, a crucial issue, I think. Um, so I'm glad that you asked about it. It's a good question. The time that they have, as we said, with uh, the temporal regime issue is regimented and and or empty there. They find themselves with huge expanses of empty time or somebody's telling them what to do with their time. So there isn't uh, that uh, kind of experience that we might think that they have. And the indeterminate sentences issue compounds that. You know, one of the uh, one of the autobiographies we, we used for part of our data. I mean, part of our data comes from Carcerell's personal experience, and part of our data comes from his interviews and observations of other prisoners. And a third part of our data comes from convict autobiographies or convict memoirs. And one of them is an excellent uh, one by Aaron George. Uh, Aaron George is serving um, 603 years for the murder of her husband. That's her sentence. Um, And uh, I'm struck by that because I'm, I'm... like, well, she's never going to serve even a large fraction of that, mm-hmm. even if they keep her in there forever. Um, so, what is it that we're what, what is it that we're doing here? What's what's the message? Um, if you look at the my edition of Foucault's uh, famous book, Discipline and Punish, there's no there aren't bars on the cover of his book, which is about the history of the origins of prisons. Um, there's a ruler. And I ask my students, I go, well, why is there a ruler on the cover of Foucault's Discipline and Punish? And, uh, and, and the reason is because when prisons were adopted, they were adopted um, as kind of a reform of what came before. What came before was that criminals were routinely tortured and executed in public spectacles, kind of gruesome public spectacles, of course. And so leading reformers said, why don't we do something else? We can be scientific, we can be rational, we can fit the punishment in a very precise and kind of uh, measured, rational, scientific way to the crime because we'll have something, time, that lends itself to that kind of precision. But when you look at what has become of uh, prisons and prison sentences, especially with uh, indeterminate sentences and also with sentences like Aaron George's 603-year sentence, um, then you see that what's, what's become of this system is that it's not a rational calculus, that the, uh, that the allure of prison uh, was the promise of, of a kind of a rational calculus of punishment that has not transpired, has not been realized. And instead, what we have is uh, the use of time and punishment that has no rational or precise uh, uh, relevance to the crime. You know, like, what is it? What is the precision? What is the relevance of giving someone 603 years uh, for the 
the murder of her husband, or the case of Mark DeFriest uh, here in Florida, where I am. Um, Mark DeFriest's father uh, bequeathed him in his will uh, some tools. Uh, Mark took the tools before the court had uh, processed the will and the estate. And so Mark was accused of theft. Mark was autistic, but thrown into prison. And uh, because of the autism, because of the general condition of prison, he got in all kinds of trouble, tried to escape, uh, got into, broke the rules, got into fights. Um, Basically, the upshot is that Mark DeFriest served 36 years for stealing, and I think stealing should be in quotation marks, tools that his father had bequeathed him. And it's difficult to see where the rational calculus is in that punishment. Here is a person who did not murder anyone, who did not rape anyone, uh, but served 36 years uh, for stealing tools that uh, his father had bequeathed him in a will. And so um, the, the, the great uh, prison experiment, if you want to think of it that way, has drifted away from uh, whatever early promise it had. It, it, there was this kind of, I think it was false to begin with, but the, it was thought that, well, uh, this, this holds out the promise for uh, punishment like a ruler, uh, where punishment can be uh, measured out in uh, very precise increments of time, like when we bake a cake, as you, you mentioned earlier. And that is not uh, the way it's uh, come to be. And I think that ends up being part of um, something else I want to raise, which is the, the concept of futurelessness. Uh, which, as I understood it, is, is partly due to an immersion, uh, the, the prisoners being immersed in cyclical time rather than linear time. That is, time repeats over and over without progressing in any meaningful way. And also, the prisoners perpetually caught up in judgment of their past and with no opportunity really to change in the present or future in the eyes of the prison system. And just another effect you raise from this is the cheapening of life and encouragement of violence, because um, as you say, the future will be unavoidably a continuation of present circumstances. So I wonder too, what is the, if you could sort of sum it up, what is the sum effect of futurelessness on prisons and on the people who inhabit them? The future is important to us. Um, I think, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, I asked my students, you know, what are you looking forward to? What are you going to what are you going to do during the summer? And they had plans that they were excited about. And I had plans. I have plans that I'm excited about. And so the future is important to human beings because uh, it's the it's the realm of hope. It's what we're hoping for. It's what we're looking forward to or desire. Uh, I'm going to go on uh, this exciting vacation. I'm going to uh, work on that uh, research that I'm uh, fascinated by. Uh, uh, and, and I'm going to see loved ones finally after the pandemic uh, uh, separation that we've had. Um, so the future is important because it gives us hope and uh, meaning. And uh, 
something to look forward to. And this is uh, crucial in staving off despair. Um, and so in prison, there isn't anything to stave off that despair. There isn't anything to, fa- to stave off fatalism and meaninglessness because the future is routinely taken away from uh, people in prison. Uh, and I think you outlined it very well. Um, uh, there are three kind of factors that, that lead to the loss of the future in prison. Um, one of them is that the prisoners confront uh, uh, an organization that is completely oriented toward the past. Prison is about punishing you for what you did. Um, and that may seem obvious, but what prison is not about is rehabilitating you for a different future. Notice how different that would be, how different that sounds, because that's not what happens. Um, it's not what happens in part because I think there's a puritanical assumption uh, going back to the Puritans that settled America in the very early days of uh, of uh of, of, of that. And um, their assumption was that uh, the people who do bad things are bad people. And they're bad people because they have kind of irrevocable traits of, uh, of uh, badness kind of baked into the cake, so to speak, uh, in their case. And so there wasn't any use trying to rehabilitate them because they weren't going to get better. Um, that view has been very influential. It still is very influential in America. It has colored uh, penal theory, penal uh, design. Uh, and so it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, if you assume that they can't be rehabilitated, how much time and effort and money do you put into rehabilitating them? Well, not very much, if any at all. Then when they don't get rehabilitated and you release them and they 60 to 70 percent of them are back in prison within three years, you take that wrongly, but you take that as uh, evidence that, uh, you know, you were right all along and they they can't be rehabilitated. uh, When in fact, what it is, is a a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy because you never tried really to rehabilitate them. Uh, to begin with. Um, so in prison, it's, it, it is all about the past. If a prisoner tra- says, you know, I'd like to do this, I want to take this program and, uh, and uh, make myself better, I want to do drug treatment, I want to get educated, as Carceral did, uh, the prison authorities uh, just always come back with, have you come to terms with what you did to come to prison, you know, that this is about you being punished for something. And so the, everything about prison is constantly reminding the prisoner uh, what he or she did. And of course, they can't undo that. Um, and none of prison is oriented toward uh, fixing this person and rehabilitating this person and helping the person uh, not to return to prison. Uh, there's plenty of evidence that the assumption that people cannot be rehabilitated is false. Uh, Carceral has been out of prison for a number of years now and, uh, and is not back in prison, has not committed any crime that would send him back into prison. Um, and um, that can be said of a lot of other people as well. 
Um, the fact that people tend to age out of street crime does not support the idea that people cannot be rehabilitated, but most street crime is committed by people between the ages of 15 and 25. So there's plenty of evidence to support the idea that people can be rehabilitated uh, if an effort is made uh, to help them uh, do that. But that's not what prisons tend to do for the most part. Then there is so the it seems, endless, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so it seems like futurelessness is actually sort of, uh, to use your words, baked, baked into the, the prison system itself, as in this, the people who were in here are futureless, and our attitude to them is that they have no future, and therefore they develop in themselves an, a, an idea of futurelessness, because they may have some goal to actually get an education or something in prison. And then absolutely that doesn't mostly happen. Carcerate yeah, being I, mean, uh, I think you know, they an exception. Have goals. They have goals and hopes and dreams, but the, the prison environment tends to suppress that and reject that. So that if a prisoner uh, goes before a parole board as Carcerell did many times and wants to talk about, uh, you know, I want to become educated. I mean, he went in when he was 19, so he was not educated when he went in. Uh, I, if he wants to be educated, if he has goals of uh, earning a PhD and perhaps working in an academic setting one day, the parole board comes back with, I, I think we're putting the cart before the horse here. Have you really come to terms with, you know, what you did to uh, go to prison? Um, and so there's the prison organization, everything about the prison in, in terms of its organization and its operation uh, returns the prisoner to the, the crime that was committed rather than going, okay, let's see uh, what we can do to uh, change you, uh, fix you, help you, uh, prepare you to come back into uh, civil society and be a different person than, uh, than the one that uh, sent you to prison. And also what we talked about uh, earlier, Rachel, about the temporal regime, that's an endlessly repeating cycle of, of uh, identical days. And so in addition to the prison focusing on one's past, the days themselves blur because they're all uh, practically identical and you just cycle through them. I mean, for... For you and me, today is a unique day. You know, it's the third day of May. I've been looking forward to talking with you about our book. Um, and uh, then it'll be gone and there never will be another, you know, third day of May 2022. In prison, however, there's almost a kind of a cyclical system along the lines of what tribal people experienced prior to the development of clocks and calendars. If you think about time among tribal people before clocks and calendars, there's day and night, day and night, day and night. There's spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, winter. There's the moon is full and then it's new and then it's full. I guess what I'm trying to say is that their experience of time was one of repetition, that time is a cycle that just repeats itself. And it's not until the development of calendars and clocks that um, 
time becomes linear in the way that we understand it in uh, in the uh, outside world, the world outside prison. And so in a weird kind of way, uh, the prisoners experience time almost like uh, tribal people prior to calendars where it's just another day and it's just like yesterday and just like tomorrow. Um, and so that is another way in which there's not, uh, they lose futureless, they, they rather have futurelessness because the future is not going to be different. You know, like I said a moment ago, I'm looking forward to my first uh, in-person conferences uh, later this year after two years of the pandemic. And um, so the future is going to be different than the past. And that's a linear time, modern time kind of idea that the future is going to be different and better. Um, It's not what tribal people experienced prior to, you know, calendars that they experienced that the the future is going to be just like the past, and they valorized that. The what what's what's the right way to do things? Tradition is the right right way to do things. And then uh, finally, you can add the unknowable sentence that uh, that there's futurelessness because you have no idea when you're going to get out. Uh, people on the outside, like us, tend to think that prisoners are in there scratching days off a calendar or making crosshatch tallies on the walls of their cell. But nobody with any sense would do that because that just prolongs your experience of time. Um, and, and you have no idea what the end date is anyway, if you've been given five to 10 and like Mark DeFries could wind up serving many more years just because you get into trouble, which is incredibly easy to do. Yeah, the sentences seem really whimsical in some ways. And one detail that really struck me was, um, and you had, I think Carceral had talked to a couple of people who said that they would not watch a certain part of the news on TV, which they were allowed to watch, because that was part of the news where they said what day and time it was. And you're right. that That is true. Uh, as Mike said, uh, a lot of guys that were short-term in prison, the first thing they would do is put the calendar on the wall and run lines through it. Uh, having a longer sentence, you learn that you toss that out, and then uh, at, at moments you'd be watching the news. And I remember uh, NBC or ABC, whichever one I watched, the first thing they would say is, here, it's Tuesday, here's the, here's the month, here's the date, here's the year. And, and uh, I, I did that a lot of times. I would let that pass, and then I would actually watch the news after that. Yeah, I just, you know, I and I was listening to the news the other day, and I noticed how, like, every three minutes they would say what time it was, and it made me think really differently about it. What uh, KC was just talking about is a nice example of how um, – Prisoners engage in, you know, what I've called time work or temporal agency, which is to say that they try to, they don't, they're not passive victims of what they experience in prison. And in interesting, ingenious ways, they often come up with improvised ways of pushing back 
and uh, trying to have some control or manipulate or customize their own temporal experience, their own experience of time. Um, and that's a, an example, you know, and they, they figure it out. They go, okay, I'm going to throw the calendar out the window here or throw it away rather. And, um, and I'm not going to watch the news at the very beginning of the show so that I can disattend time and not be reminded uh, of what the date is and or what time it is. And this is an example of uh, the prisoners trying to push back against the uh, experience of time that, that, that they have in, inside. But I think, as you said in the book, they weren't actually very successful. They're not very successful in doing that. Maybe success is not the right word to use, but that it's kind of a futile attempt to um, push back. The, the success that they have is uh, tends to be local and temporary. I think, as uh, Dersertow said, uh, what they win, they cannot hold. Um, uh, so it's sort of like guerrilla warfare that the the, the guerrilla army can can win, but it can't hold the territory that uh, after. And so, you know, ultimately, the prison experience is what the prison experience is going to be. Uh, if prisoners could at will modify it and make it better, then prisons wouldn't have wouldn't be the rough places they are, wouldn't be the harsh places they are, because you could go in there and just make your time better for yourself. You can around the edges in marginal ways and in a local and temporary way make things better, but you're, you might win a battle, I guess I might say, but you're going to lose the war. Yeah. So you might have a, a day that's better than another day. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead. Again, uh, turn the volume off. Uh, in the book, my, uh, uh, put one of my quotes in there how I explained the existence was like a gear, uh, you know, they're round and you have notches and each one was a duration. And when you try to win the battle, as, as you're saying, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a circular. So, you know, you're coming right back to the same battle each day, each duration, each moment. And it's, it's, uh, something that you, I guess you, uh, realize that it's a futile effort and uh, it, it depends on the individual. As you noted uh, about the education, I, you know, I took the education and that was my route to kind of escape under the control of the correctional system. However, it's a futile battle because you would keep going in the same circle. Hmm. I wonder this is a completely different um, scale of experience, but just in terms of uh, time being linear and like the same thing happening day after day. And I, I wonder if you see an application for your research and understanding how people may have been affected by relative confinement during the last two years of the COVID era, uh, or, or also people, I'm thinking also people, for instance, in nursing homes, or care facilities where they don't have a lot of choices and, you know, they don't have a lot of activities and, and variety? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because I think we all got a little bit of a taste of the things that uh, Casey and I are talking about in the book during the social isolation 
phase of the the pandemic. In fact, uh, uh, in 2021, I published a article with uh, my Romanian colleague, Cosima Ruganish, What Do Memes Tell Us About Self and Time During the Pandemic? And uh, it was interesting to me, the parallels, uh, the losing track of time, for example, uh, what day is it? Well, some of the online memes would complain that uh, every day was the same. You, you didn't go to work, you stayed home. Um, and so is it Monday? Is it Tuesday? No, it's Blur's Day. I have no idea what, what day it is. And uh, people found this unsettling. Um, the, the memes are kind of funny, but, uh, but you could see that uh, people are, were disoriented and uncomfortable with uh, how time slowed down uh, like it does in prison and how they lost track of time. Uh, not knowing what day it is, not knowing what time it is, because it doesn't matter. And like it doesn't matter in prison to know what time it is. In fact, it's uh, counterproductive to know what time it is and counterproductive to know what day it is in a certain extent. And in a similar way, during the pandemic, uh, that was uh, true as well. And uh, so uh, it was an interesting uh, it was an interesting period. The article was published in uh, Contexts in on April thirteenth uh, in twenty twenty one, and uh, there are definitely there were definitely some parallels between what we experienced in social isolation and uh, what they experience in prison. Now there were also some important differences. Um, I could walk out my front door and take a walk outside anytime I wanted to, um, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, we don't want to push the analogy too far, but there were. I may, I may, I may. Uh, yeah. Sorry about interrupting, Mike. Uh, once again, I can't uh, hear you guys. I got it on microphone only. Uh, actually, I sometimes think that when the pandemic hit, uh, my experience in some ways was a blessing. I know it kind of sounds paradoxical. However, uh, it, it was just like. Uh, to me, in some ways, it's like, well, this is how it goes. This is how it works. Uh, with the experience I had, uh, negative or positive, actually it helped in some ways, which is kind of unique in that situation alone, too. Oh, I think that's a good point, and it's true for me as well. In a... In an almost funny way, and I say almost funny, it was funny. Uh, some of the online memes that we looked at, uh, I identified with because some of the memes uh, would would say, you know, well, let's see, I get to stay home and do my own work and I don't have to go anywhere and I don't have to get dressed up. And uh, this is actually my normal life. And it, it sort of is for me, too. I mean, I get up in the morning and I, you know, uh, go for a walk and I come back and I want to write and edit and do my research Um and um, I'm in the house by myself. My partner goes off to work. And uh, so it's not only my normal life, it's uh, was my preferred life. And so I was kind of like, uh, oh, this is this is this is what life is supposed to be like. But I guess I would hasten to add for a lot of people that 
I, I mean, I was lucky. I had a partner at home. I had a nice house to stay in. And uh, so, I mean, for a lot of people, it was uh, very uncomfortable. And, and the losing track of time and the staying home was uncomfortable. But KC makes a good point. For some people, him and me, um, it, it wasn't that bad. And it, it was actually fine for a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. But I think, um, and for some people, uh, because I... You know, I had, uh, was relatively easy for me too, but for some people, it certainly would have affected their experience of time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, no, it did. And it gave us a taste of, uh, of uh, time in prison in that sense, the, the blurring of the days and the, especially the protracted duration that we talked about earlier. People just felt like the days were endless. Uh, because you were stuck at home, couldn't go out, couldn't change your setting couldn't uh, alter, you know, what you were doing in, a, in the way, you, you know, you couldn't go down to the corner bar and, and have a and have a beer. You couldn't uh, uh, go visit your friends. Uh, you couldn't go to the movies. Uh, there was all of there was a real taste of uh, the limitations that uh, prisoners experience in that sense. If I if I may, uh, the other thing that happened when that occurred as once they opened the floodgates again so people could go you notice that people really started doing a lot of activities they weren't so much concerned about getting back to work and it kind of mimics a prisoner getting out of prison you're confined like uh with the COVID, and then when you get released you want to do everything you possibly can to like make up for that lost time which is I find that uh, in prison, they call it going home fever. And if you talk to ex-cons that get out of prison, they say similar things. And I believe that's part of it, where you try to get as much done in the moment as fast as you can. But yeah, it's once again a, a battle you will not win. Huh. That's interesting. And I, we've certainly seen people you know, sort of running out and trying to do as much as they can since some of the restrictions have been listed, uh, lifted, or a lot of restrictions have been lifted, I would say, related to COVID. Uh, another thing I wonder about, and maybe for both of you, because the book doesn't really engage with your personal beliefs about the prison system, but at one point you reference pious believers in the cult of incarceration, which seems to suggest strong feelings about it. Uh, I wonder if you care to comment on that or how you, how you feel about the prison system. If I may speak before Mike does, Please. Uh, uh, just I, uh, what I want to say is this. I just want to interject my opinion because, yes, I noticed what he wrote. And what I would like to say on that is, he has never worked with anybody in prison. And as I was trying to find a co-author with this book, I was lucky because Buddha once said, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. And Mike showed up. But yet, on the other hand, I kind of was also teaching him. And it's, it's something that I would expect with zero experience about prisons. And then all of a sudden you get this, this wealth of information it's it's can be rough in a sense that it's something that you never studied before and now all of a sudden it's here uh 
and, and actually, the, to me, that was expected. And I'm glad he had that experience to be non-judgmental and grow from that experience. Yeah, I would uh, agree with everything that uh, Casey just said. In fact, uh, we started working on this project in uh, 2010, I think, and it's been an eye-opening experience for me. I was not someone who had never been to prison, hadn't studied prisons uh, much. I had uh, only studied time. I did a little research on suicides of uh kids in jail uh, way back at the beginning. But basically, I was not at all um, uh, someone who studied prisons uh, before KC contacted me. And I wasn't, uh, and I think I was in that sense, like much of the general public kind of just uh, uh, ignorant of uh, what goes on there and what it's really like there. And uh, it's been an eye-opening experience. And um I, as a sociologist, uh, wanted this book to be very much a study of what goes on there. I didn't want the book to be um, an exercise in advocacy or uh, critique exactly. I wanted it to be a sociological study of uh, what happens to time and temporal experience when people go to prison. But uh, in the course of that, uh, you can't help but uh, uh, see what prisons have actually become, how they actually operate. And uh, you begin to see that there's uh, uh, an enormous amount of uh, needless cruelty um, associated with them and, the, and that the prisons thrive on secrecy. And in that sense, I think, uh, I hope this book uh, sheds a little light on uh, the way things operate, how they operate, and 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 illuminates the fact that uh, whatever prisons were thought to be when they were first adopted, they've become something else uh, again. And especially in the era of mass incarceration, uh, when far too many people. Uh, and a disproportionate, mem- a disproportionate number of uh, minority groups are sent to prison for things which in other countries would uh, bring a fine or probation uh, or be treated as a medical or psychological problem and, and, and treated essentially as a public health issue. Uh, in the United States, this, this stuff, especially I'm, I'm thinking here about uh, the many people in prisons for things like uh, marijuana. Uh, uh, you know, you see a system that is uh, having the uh, punishing and harsh effects that we talked about uh, earlier uh, on a population, uh, many of whom have no business being in prison. Uh, but there are always going to be of course, uh, some people that uh, are better off uh, there to protect the community, uh, that's understandable. But uh, America especially uh, imprisons far more people than other nations do, and uh, many of them uh, have no need to be in prison. And then when you think about the uh, 
what happens to prison as this book reveals, uh, then you can't help but uh, uh, come to the conclusion that there's some alternatives that we should consider. And that's really, I guess, uh, what uh, drove me to, to write that sentence. Hmm. Well, it's certainly a fascinating way to lens through which to see what the experience or get an idea of what the experience of being in prison is like, uh, to see it through the way that prisoners experience time. Um, because I think reading it, you really can picture what it's like in some sense to have that feeling, having to wait, being powerless. I mean, you can extrapolate, imagine what it's like to be in that position. So it's really, as I said, I, I find that very um, evocative and poignant because it's not really, of course you think, yes, it must be a real drag to be in prison for all this time, but not about what it is actually like to experience time in those particular ways. Well, I'd like to credit KC on that because KC uh, is the one who said, you know, he knew about my work about on time. And I think he saw that uh, prison is something akin to a gigantic diabolical experiment. Uh, what happens to time and temporal experience if we treat people in, in the ways that we've described today? And uh, it is revealing. It's revealing about time and it's revealing about uh, being in prison. And I think uh, that you, you put your finger on something. There's been a lot of studies of prison, but uh, time, and this is kind of preposterous, but time and how time is experienced in prison has not been studied. Uh, and by, by focusing on time, you, I think, really begin to understand, as you said, what it's like to be in prison uh, and not in that abstract kind of vague, well, I guess it's not very nice kind of way, but in the uh, multidimensional, concrete, very specific uh, ways that uh, uh, our data reveal in this book. And Casey, you were about to say something? Uh, no, I, I actually think Mike uh, covered it pretty well. I mean, uh, you know, it's kind of going back to the insider, the outsider. Uh, I do feel uh, uh, personally that what we wrote about with prisons, uh, it does account for a lot of the misunderstanding uh, because once you start chopping up the data and dicing it out, it's like uh, many people have the, the society conception of prison, but that's why many criminologists call it the uh, prison industrial complex, because as Mike said, there's no oversight, uh, and when there is, it's not really oversight, and uh, I also believe there's certain things we can do to change it, however, I just don't see it happening because it's a money-making machine, it, 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 it kind of the way I see it, I mean, uh, let me put it like this. If you work in a prison and you let somebody go, what happens to your paycheck? If you let everybody go, you don't have a paycheck. And now if you keep them and you develop laws as the tinkerers develop laws, it kind of gives them power and lets them have a little empire. And a lot of times that does happen without concern 
to what the individual is going through. Wow. So that's, um, it's, it's gives really just really gives you a, a different way of, of looking at things, I think. So, well, um, Casey, no, Michael, may, oh, no, go ahead. Uh, yeah. When I first got locked up, once again, I entered prison with the same beliefs, you know, uh, but it, it just, it changes your whole mentality in the sense that, uh, even right now, uh, under the sentence I have, they could knock on my door. I could be talking to you. I mean, this is a little bit extreme, but I'll paint the extreme because it's pretty extreme what we write about in the book. They could say, okay, you're done. Uh, we, we're going to lock you back up. And it's something you just adjust to. Uh, it, it, you just never know when the politicians may put their finger in their pot and just uh, decide that they must start doing things differently. And a lot of times when you deal with the politicians and uh, they make the rules and they also collect the money, and you start wondering, not to sound like, uh, uh, you know, like a communist or anything like that or a Marxist, but it, it, it amazes me that they get away with it and they started a machine where they have a profit enterprise which is doing pretty good yeah i I think the for-profit prison system is another like a whole other maybe can of worms to open but i i guess i would say is it the for-profit prisons is one aspect but a relatively small one um there's a whole lot of businesses that their their money, their business depends on providing the things that prisons need, the, the uh, two-inch thick foam mattresses, the plexiglass, the uniforms, and uh, so on. And so the for-profit aspect of it is one part of the prison industrial complex that Casey mentioned. But the bigger part of it is just businesses. A whole lot of businesses are now... Uh, they're economically focused on uh, providing uh, the things that prisons need. And so there's an enormous economic impetus behind the, the prison industrial complex. Yes, there is. There is. Yeah, Mike is right. And when they call it industrial, I guess that's that name, there is a whole bunch of things. You have welders come in and fixed prisons. You have plumbers come in, you have electricians. I mean, you can break down to the list. It just, it is a, it is a money generating machine. Yeah. That's, um, as I said, that's a whole other aspect of it. And that is, yeah, I can't, I can't even go into it because um, I don't know that much about it. But but just the idea well, of, as talk, you said, think, but... it would be another talk exactly. Um, but you know, every time you 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 stick industrial complex onto a, <laughs> the back of something uh, to form a compound, that you know, there's it's not going to be a good thing in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, that's a good point actually. And uh, the yeah. the main thing is that for the prison industrial complex, the the commodity is prisoner bodies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, this has been a fascinating talk, and I want to thank you both so much for being here today and talking about your book, which, again, for everyone, is The Cage of Days, Time and Temporal Experience in Prison, uh, out now from Columbia University Press. And Casey and Michael, thank you so much for bringing your, your knowledge and your research and your wisdom here. Thank you, Rachel. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today about our book. Yes, yes. Thank you, too. Uh, sorry about that technology, uh, technology difficulties, but thank you. <laughs>